Rewind, your week in review, is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association, bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate. This week on Rewind, your week in review. Racine County officials are recommending felony charges against members on the State Elections Commission. We have reaction from Wisconsin's top election official who says they did nothing wrong. Plus, Governor Evers vows to veto GOP redistricting maps, why he says he's got a better alternative. And we break down the highlights from a new statewide poll which shows troubling signs for Democrats and Republicans heading into the midterm elections. All this and more on Rewind, your week in review for October 5th. Hi, I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. J.R., we're going to start with the latest in the Racine County Sheriff's investigation. It was brought forth about a week ago. Um, and now this week, he is recommending felony charges against four out of the six members of the Wisconsin Elections Commission. Um, Christopher Schmeling is recommending charges, like I mentioned, to those five. And he sent his recommendations to the Racine County District Attorney, alleging election officials broke law or I should say election law, and all this is centering around them sending absentee ballots to residents at a Mount Pleasant nursing home instead of sending poll workers, also called special voting deputies, to observe voting during the pandemic. They voted early on during the pandemic in 2022 to allow this rule. It was a 6-0 vote. They voted again later on, and the only one commissioner who voted against that um, on Bob, uh, Bob Spindell, Spindel, um, mm -hmm. a Republican. So he's the only one not being recommended for these charges. Now, before we get into how everyone's kind of responding to this, here's what Megan Wolf had to say before the charges were filed. She, of course, is defending her agency, saying she's not going to resign over this, and overall doesn't believe they did anything wrong. Um, let's first hear from Megan what she had to say. And once again, these are her comments before these charges were initially um, referred to a local DA. Um, in terms of the calls for, for my resignation, you know, ultimately I think that it's not productive. I think it's baseless. And I think it's just partisan politics. Again, I think that the commission's decisions, they were made 18 months ago in a public setting. And so there were plenty of opportunities, times and places to object to those decisions. Uh, the commission was looking to ensure, uh, if you look at their deliberations, that voters in those care facilities received their ballots under unprecedented circumstances. Um, so I believe that because the commission determined that it was impossible for those special voting deputies visits to occur, that there was no choice but to proceed to the option provided by in law uh, to send those those voters their ballots so that they would not be disenfranchised. So some of her comments was a respond to top Republicans uh, asking her to resign over this rule um, that WEDC made regarding nursing homes and sending absentee ballots to them. They're basically defending themselves that saying this was the only thing we had to do and able to allow these residents to participate in the election. Um, also, Attorney General Josh Call, we heard from this week saying he's not aware of any of similar incidents happening across the state. Republicans and Schmeling is calling on him to launch a statewide investigation, which he dismissed. Yeah. So a nuance about the special voting deputies law to remember, um, under state law, clerks have to send them to nursing homes twice before they send the absentee ballots. 
they weren't letting the deputies in last year during the pandemic. So even if the Elections Commission had not suspended this rule of two visits before an absentee ballot goes out, those who requested them, those residents would have gotten the absentee ballot, so it would have taken longer. So don't, don't so just keep that in mind, this whole discussion, that these residents got absentee ballots properly. It was the question of should they have had two visits before they got the ballots requested. That said, I have called a half dozen attorneys at least the last couple of days to ask them, okay, what's going on here? What's your thoughts? My takeaway is state law empowers Elections Commission to administer elections in Wisconsin. I don't know if that power to administer elections gives them the authority to suspend the voting deputies requirement. Not a single attorney I talked to, conservative, Republican, Democrat, liberal, told me in any way, shape, or form they think that the Elections Commissioners are guilty of a felony misconduct in office. They don't know where the sheriff is getting this, this, this recommended charge because they don't see where you get that conclusion from what they did. There are lots of questions here. Does a, a Racine County Sheriff have authority over a state agency based in Madison? Well, you can maybe make the argument that the advice they gave resulted in legal actions in Racine County, therefore you can kind of go up the chain with that. Okay, maybe, but again, you're talking about felony misconduct and office charges for making a policy decision. I just can't find anybody telling me how they, make, they draw that conclusion that he and his agency have of these five commissioners are guilty of felony misconduct in office. Also, Bob Spindell voted with the other commissioners the first time to authorize clerks not to send the deputies. The Sheriff's Department says, well, he voted against that, uh, re that request three other times. Why he's left out. But he still, in their Made minds, the broke the law once. How come he's not guilty of then the same things that commissioners are? So it's interesting. So in asking these lawyers again and other people what's going on, I've heard things like publicity stunt. Um, this is they think maybe it's politically motivated. A lot of Democrats think so too, and the timing of it. The sheriff maybe has higher aspirations. Um, what is big picture pullback? Remember we've talked about this before that there's a similar Republican base that thinks the election was stolen, that there was fraud committed, that Donald Trump really won Wisconsin. And Republican lawmakers go home to these local party events all the time, and I hear them getting beat up about you're not doing enough to stop the steal, to overturn the election, to hold people accountable. Republicans now have a talking point of, here's your person who's responsible. The Elections Commission broke the law according to the sheriff. Ergo, you shouldn't be yelling at me anymore. You should be mad at those guys. They're the ones. They should be held accountable. I don't know if that's what the sheriff is after here, but looking at the political piece of this, that gives these Republicans a point to say, okay, deflect the heat for me and put it over here on these guys. And uh, Republican Commissioner Dean Knudsen was also saying that he believes uh, Republicans are looking for a scapegoat yeah. in this entire thing. And, I mean, who, who knows, right? Um, if you look at, at the politics, like you said, that it could be a reason they just want to go back to their district and point a finger at someone. Um, I also kind of want to transition onto next week on Tuesday, the other GOP investigation, the Senate, led by Senate Republicans. Um, there's going to be a hearing on Tuesday diving into the legislative or the nonpartisan legislative audit bureau's report about investigating into the election. Uh, Chair Ann Jacobs of WEC is asking for a delay because she says, hey, look, we haven't had time to review all these materials. And there's also some pushback from a lot of commissioners and Wolf saying that they weren't included, they weren't invited to the table to mm -hmm. look at the audit before it was released, which is typical procedures. Yeah, so usually what happens is the audit, or the audit bureau has a draft report sits down with the people who were audited and they kind of compare notes. Um, the Audit Bureau said when we released this report a couple weeks ago, it did not do it here with either the Elections Commission or local clerks because they want to protect the integrity or the, 
the details of the report until they released it, they argued that the Elections Commission itself, uh, the administrator does not have the power to basically answer the questions without directions from the commission. The commission has to follow open meetings laws. It couldn't address this thing in private session, therefore it couldn't be helpful. Um, the Elections Commission and Jacobs, the chair on Thursday, sent this letter asking for delay uh, of the co-chairs of the Audit Committee from Tuesday's hearing saying, we can't give you anything you know, sufficient because if you have Megan Wolf testify, she'll say, I can't answer that question until the commission right. tells me what's going on. They also sent a request to the Audit Bureau basically for, okay, we want to see your procedures. How, how are you supposed to do things normally? Because we feel like there are errors in this report. They've not detailed them yet. Supposedly right. December 1st, they're going to have a meeting. We'll find out then what their, their questions are. They want basically to hold the LB's feet to the fire of how you did things because we think there are mistakes in here. We're going to point out the mistakes we think you have in your report. And we're just not going to know those for a while because it's a big hefty report to go through and commissioners are probably still reviewing it. I talked to Ann Jacobs. She said, I'm still going through this. I need time to go over all this material. Oh, you know about the audit uh, committee meeting on Tuesday. So remember the Senate co Elections Committee is going to take the baton now in the Senate on election uh, investigations or reviews, whatever word you want to use. Um, the Senate has yet to detail, the Senate Republicans, the scope of what Kathy Benier is going to do. I get the impression from you know this hearing on Tuesday. After that, they'll then define that scope and what her charge is going to be. We know they want to go after Madison. Like, why did Madison run the ballots, election records? What else they want Kathy Benier to look into beyond that in this review she's doing? All right, we touched on all three. Let's touch on the fourth uh, <laughs> real quick before we get to some other topics of the week. Um, the Gableman election. Uh, weekly update, as I like to call it. Um, we're learning more through FOIA requests about just how much he has billed taxpayers so far. Um, let's take a look. So far, 62000 in salaries and office rent for his review of the 2020 election. Now, according to the invoices he submitted to the, to the assembly, excuse me, that, of course, a lot of reporters got through open record requests, the info, in, wow, I'm blurring a lot of words, <laughs> invoices detailing 59,000 in salaries, but it didn't list the names on who's getting paid. It also shows officials in the five cities that were targeted in the probe have interacted with three people besides Gableman. Those three people are Andrew Klosser, who's a former Trump administrated attorney, Carol Mathis, a California attorney active with the Federalist Decided, who very long time for a long time was just abbreviated Carol M. So mm -hmm. we now found out who this mystery was. Um, and don't know that Zororki Naminsky? I'm going <laughs> to let you take that one, JR. <laughs> so, um, and we don't know who else is there. So, in looking yeah. at the invoices, like for example, September's invoices had distribution one, two, three, and four. October's had distribution one, two, three, four, and five. I could look at one through four, the same amount. If they're getting paid monthly, well, okay, I know there are four people, like they got paid September, October, and a fifth got paid in October. Or, mm -hmm. sorry, September, October, and a fifth got paid in October. We also have Gable making 11000 bucks a month as part of this contract, so I saw that invoice. But again, we're not sure like who's all there, who's working with them. General Sentinel figured out who Carol M. is. She would sign her emails, Carol M., um, to local officials, so that was interesting. And now we have a new piece of this. We're still waiting to see when our local officials are going to testify or meet with Michael Gableman. The city attorney, Madison, wrote a letter this week saying, hey, by the way, we're supposed to talk to you guys on the 15th of November, something like that. We have yet to hear about the scope of what you want to talk about. Until you give us details, we kind of reach an agreement. We're not, well, our understanding is we're not showing up. Uh, I talked to Milwaukee Elections Commission director. She said the same thing, basically. We're still trying to work out, like, what's going on. So we're basically in a holding pattern with the Gableman 
investigation and who they're talking to and when. And it's been things. a little quiet lately because... No videos on YouTube. No <laughs> videos on YouTube yet. I, I mean, he might be coming out with one soon, but it was just... Gosh, uh, these days go by so quickly. Um, maybe was it last week or two weeks ago, Speaker Voss even kind of hinted that there could be possibly more subpoenas, and he specifically wanted to target Megan Wolf, the administrator of WEC. And address the issue raised by Josh Collins' lawsuit of, okay, you guys want to testify in a private office in a strip mall in Brookfield. That's not really what state law envisions. It envisions them testifying in public before a committee, so this is not an appropriate request. All right, uh, let's move on to the People's Maps. Um, they released their final uh, pr map proposals. Uh, this comes after Governor Evers has vowed to veto the GOP proposed redistricting maps. Um, let's hear from the chair defending the maps and why he believes this is a better, better version. As a former teacher, I'll just say this. Clearly, they didn't understand the assignment. Somehow Republicans prepared uh, gerrymandered maps that some have described even more gerrymandered than the ones that are existence at this point in time. If I had grave homework, it'd be enough. I'm not the only one either. All three maps prepared by the Republicans have already received an F rating from the Princeton gerrymandered project due to significant Republican advantage. And advantaging incumbents and being uncompetitive compared to the maps that could have been drawn. Folks, Wisconsinites won't stand for gerrymandering 2.0. Either will I. So I want to be clear today, if the Republican maps come to my desk, they are going as they're currently drafted, I'll veto them. It's just as simple as that. So JR, we know where these, this redistricting battle is likely going to end mm -hmm. up in the courts. Um, let's just uh, first uh, have some reaction to these people's maps. Uh, Devin Lemahue, the Senate Majority Leader, said Governor Evers attached his name to maps that decrease racial majority minority districts and disenfranchise over 500,000 Wisconsin voters. His commission prioritized partisan gerrymandering over core constitution, constitutional protections. Um, as we heard, Governor Evers and the chair who was there of the People's Maps Commission were defending this, saying this is, we believe, is just more fair. It's not gerrymandered as your map. So once again, we're back at this political finger pointing. But I think we know the end result is going to be left to the courts to figure this out. Yeah. A couple things about the People's Maps, the final draft. Um, one, there's a lot of Republican advantage with the map. Looks like the Senate, for example. Under the current lines, Donald Trump won Let's see, Joe Biden won 11 districts. Under the proposal from the People's Maps Commission, he would have won 12. So it's not a huge improvement in terms of partisan balance. Mm -hmm. Now, the caveat is there were five Republican districts that Trump got 51.5% or less. So in a good Democratic year, there is a path of 17 votes on the People's Map to having a majority um, in the Senate. There is not one under current lines or under the maps that Republicans drew just because the top of the ticket numbers, you'd have to outperform leaps and bounds to win those seats and have a majority. There are still some issues with People's Maps Commission drafts. One, you saw fewer majority minority districts than what Republicans have proposed or in current law. I talked to Senator Leon Taylor, who is black, a uh, Democrat from Milwaukee. She returns both about the People's Maps Commission drafts and the Republican maps saying, look, um, her argument is it's not enough to be at 50% in a district. To, for black or Hispanic voters, you have to exceed that by a certain amount to kind of guarantee this recurring the Voting Rights Act to have an opportunity 
like the hand of your choice. So she's got issues with both of them. There are also some things trying to figure out with the people's maps about like whether they have basically vacant districts. So there are districts that aren't up for election in 2022 that I don't think have a senator in them. So if they don't have a senator in them, who's going to fill who's that? Who's going to take over? Yeah. So yeah. there's some things like that that I'm trying to figure out because you got, I'm trying to move people around on the thing. Mm-hmm. But anyway, these maps are not going to become law to the legislature. The question is what court will accept them. We have more wrangling in the state Supreme Court and federal court coming up. Um, state Supreme Court waiting for a status update pretty much at some point. Of, okay, we're going to do X. They're going to set a deadline for action by this date, and then we're going to act or whatnot. We're watching that. The federal court's waiting to see what the state Supreme Court's going to do. They want a, an update basically by the end of today of what's going on, so I'm watching for that. So at some point we're getting to court. The question is when and then which map gets picked, but I don't know if any of these are going to become the final one just yet. And uh, Republicans have, I think, tentative plans next week to vote on these maps. That is their last scheduled floor period on their calendar right now, but you know they can pick and choose whenever yeah. they want to come back. Senate will come in Monday. They're expected to take it up then. An assembly committee votes on them Tuesday. The assembly will be in on Thursday. They I haven't said for Thursday sure too. it's going to be on the agenda, but Robin Voss has said before they break, they break as of Thursday next week, so the assumption is, okay, one plus one equals two there. Vote on the maps, and then we go to the governor's veto pen, and then we go to court. Uh, and now it's been about two months. Uh, we have a new Marquette University Law School poll out. Um, some interesting key takeaways. Um, I think number one is after, of course, the Virginia governor's race, uh, we're seeing some troubling signs for Democrats, but also for U.S. Senator Ron Johnson. Both of those incumbents say if the election was held today, according to these results, both would only receive at or below 40 percent among those who responded to this poll. And it was a little bit different than previous head-to-head matchups that MU uh, poll director Charles Franklin typically does. He instead asked people, well, would you vote for Evers or Johnson or for someone else? Um, We'll get a little bit into that because when me and you talked earlier this week, it's pretty interesting. Regardless of who's... uh, who's the candidate and you rather vote for someone else, national trends also show a majority of people are going to pick someone else. Another key takeaway, if we want to put that slide back up too, is that all the political figures that were polled were viewed more unfavorably than favorably. That includes uh, President Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, President Trump, Democratic Senator Tammy Baldwin. Pence was also in there um, as well. So those are kind of the big two uh, that we were talking about. And Charles Franklin really just described this as a challenging political environment and a grumpy electorate. Yeah. So it's not a great time to be an incumbent right now. Now, the question is, are different for Ron Johnson and Tony Evers. So first, that question about, you know, the candidate or somebody else, uh, it's a marginal value because there isn't just somebody else. That somebody else has warts, they have baggage, they have views, um, they have pluses or minuses. So that's something to keep in mind. For Johnson, it is, does Tuesday uh, predict an environment for next fall? Right. Because Ron Johnson's had mediocre numbers in the Marquette election poll, Marquette University, Marquette University Law School poll for a long time. He doesn't have any staff right now. Well, as of September 30th, he had no campaign staff on his payroll. He hasn't really kicked up the fundraising. Despite all of that, he's in okay position right now because if the environment is as good for Republicans as it was on Tuesday, then he could ride a red wave to re-election despite having these questions about if he's telling the truth on the coronavirus, that was another issue came up in the poll that showed people don't trust what he's saying about that. That's a troubling thing. The challenge for Johnson is he's kind of locked up the Trump folks. Um, can he win back the suburban voters who fled the Republican Party because of Trump? 
Now in Virginia. I was just going to say there was a prime example in Virginia. Did a good job. But he tiptoed the line of the Trump base was engaged. He had core Republicans and won back those suburban voters. Has Johnson done enough to win back those suburban voters? I'm not not sure we're seeing that just yet. To Tony Evers, the challenge is Joe Biden. Uh, midterms are always difficult for the party in power of the White House. But when you're, party, when you're at 42 percent, I don't mean to laugh, but like that's a really difficult headwind. Mm-hmm. So can Tony Evers, can, can Joe Biden get to 47, 48, 49 percent by next fall when then Evers could float above the president by a little bit? Remember, in 2018, before Scott Walker lost by, was it, 25,000 points, yeah. 1.1 points, mm-hmm. um, Trump was at 47.50 in the Marquette poll for job approval. So if you get to that territory, you can float above that as a candidate like Evers, who maybe has a financial advantage over Rebecca Clayfish, Kevin Nicholson, whichever Republican's going to be. That's your opportunity. But you have to have Biden get back to that territory. If he's at 42%. I mean, like you're talking red wave. It's, it's not good. For it was a bad week for Democrats and just headlines overall. Mm-hmm. And the Democrat kind of response that we've been heard from President Trump is, well, we got to get things done, right? Yep. Well, there hasn't been a lot of progress on his infrastructure and massive spending plans that he wants to get done. Um, let's listen to Charles Franklin just talk a little bit about this uniqueness, about how all of those who were polled, he was even a little taken aback that a lot of them uh, weren't uh, gaining a lot of support, yeah. I guess. They weren't looking good. Yeah. I think the the takeaways that I see are, first, that of seven political figures we asked about, all seven are at least slightly more unfavorable than favorable right now. That's unusual. We have never, I think, in a Marquette poll, found all of the political figures we asked about to be uh, underwater, more unfavorable than favorable. We also saw job approval numbers go down for Tony Evers over the last two months and go down for Joe Biden over those last two months. Uh, favorability has gone down a little bit for both of them as well. And so I think if you look ahead to the political environment one year out from Election Day, it's a challenging environment, but it's challenging for both parties. Uh, One last note on these polls and just something that I know a lot of people are talking about and paying attention to is that uh, Virginia Republican candidate Glenn Youngkin that won, uh, you know, he accepted Trump's endorsement, but also kept him Mm -hmm. at afar. He rarely spoke his name. Um, He didn't, you know, campaign on Trump's policies. And that might be a strategy that Wisconsin Republicans are saying, hey, maybe that might work. I talked to the Wisconsin Republican Party executive director, Mark Jefferson, yesterday, and he didn't admit they're going to be you know, pushing away from Trump. But he also says, I believe now is time for candidates to start establishing themselves and run on the policies again. You know, just don't always just keep speaking Trump out of your mouth, per se. The Republican dream is to keep the Trump base engaged because he brought out voters who would typically turn out, but also win back suburban voters. Youngkin did it. We're a Trumpier state than Virginia. Remember, Virginia went for Biden by 10 points. We were like (laughs) a fraction (laughs) of a point. It's tougher to do a plus we have primaries, possibly, for governor. Well, we will have a prime for governor. We're expecting it at some point, some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. And there will be a Trump factor in that primary. So it's a little tougher here to do that than it is in Virginia. But, yeah, I think Republicans would, lo- if seven Republicans would love to move beyond Trump and start talking about something else, but keep Trump people engaged. Exactly. Uh, and then another candidate who was, or I shouldn't say candidate, 
I guess he is a candidate, but he's still our attorney general right now. <laughs> he is running for re-election. He announced um, a safer Wisconsin legislative plan that focuses on reducing crime and investing in communities. Some of the key takeaways, it's a legislative package that would use some of the state's surplus to pay for it. And it's $150 million in total. Some of them include statutory charges, funding for community policing, treatment for diversion programs, violence prevention and gun safety, um, and some of those also include universal background checks, some of the same things that uh, Evers administration has been pushing for, also red flag laws that would take um, guns away, or a judge would determine to take guns away from someone who's deemed dangerous or harmful to themselves. Republicans, we know where they stand on those Mm -hmm. specific issues. They have long um, opposed those saying they would violate Second Amendment rights and just due process rights overall. Look, Democrats are looking at what happened in Minneapolis with the vote to reject disbanding the police department in Seattle, uh, where a Republican won, I think, the DA's office in uh, Seattle, prosecutor's office in Seattle, and going, okay, that defund police thing, that didn't work out so well for us. Mm-hmm. We have a public safety issue. There are concerns. Andrews and Marquette poll that people feel like crime is rising, but not really necessarily in their neighborhood. So it's that perception of crime. They're trying to address it. I don't know if this will be enough. Republicans are not going to do this stuff. Number one, don't forget, every time you spend money like what Call is calling for for safety stuff, you have to spend money on schools to keep that means of effort requirement for federal law for the um, COVID funds that schools can receive. It raises the price tag significantly. And two, Republicans have no incentive to give Democrats a win on a public safety package because they see that this is an issue for Democrats. Why would they give, give Josh something that he could run on next fall when they can say, look, he hasn't done enough with what we have on the books as it is to address uh, crime? And I know even cities like Milwaukee are trying to do their own crime prevention package using their federal funds or put it in, you know, the city's budget to figure it out. So, yes, there are statewide initiatives like calls, but I think it's now, you know, local communities trying to act on their own because, A, they know they can likely get it done, and it just is usually a a fight over how much to spend. Um, Let's go to the stock picks of the week. Um, Let's first start with rising, uh, the wheel tax. So uh, wheel tax is... Uh, 2011, there were four communities that had them in Wisconsin. Come February, it'll be 44. Uh, wheel tax income is up, according to a new report. Um, Double-digit increases four years in a row. Local communities are hemmed in by elements on property taxes and trying to find ways to go get more revenue. They're not going to get Republicans to approve a local uh, sales tax. This is an option. So in places like Madison, you're not paying just 85 bucks to the state, but your car, you're paying about 150 bucks or more than that between the state, county, and city. It's a source of local revenue. It has to go to t- toward transportation, but it frees up property taxes in the meantime to spend on other stuff. Yeah, well, I will just say I'm not a fan of the wheel tax. <laughs> <laughs> Madison's gone up quite a bit, and I've only been here about five or six years. But uh, all right, let's go to mix. Now, this is pretty interesting because it's basically just putting the racing district attorney in a really tough spot, depending on what she does or if she does anything at all when it comes to um, the racing sheriff sending yeah. her recommended charges. Look, Patricia Hans was elected in 2016. She had been in the DA's office for 22 years, four of them as the deputy district attorney. She's kind of a career prosecutor, right? But this is a political hot potato in her lap. So if she charges, right, let's say she does this, I don't find anybody who says they'll hold up in court. Like whether it's a motion to say there's no probable cause here, whether they actually get a conviction and it's appeals court goes, there's nothing to see here. In the end, you're not going to win a conviction, these lawyers tell me, because there's nothing there to support the charge. But if she doesn't charge, 
Racine County has been a hotbed of Tea Party activities since the Tea Party began more than a decade ago. If you're a Republican who doesn't charge these commissioners with crimes, do you see people try to recall you? Does it cause you political fallout? She has got two unappealing decisions in front of her. It'll be interesting to see what she does with this and then what the political fallout might be for her personally based on what she does. And uh, falling this week, we recapped a little bit, uh, or I should say preview the Mequon Thiesfeld recall effort, which failed mm-hmm. uh, to recall four school board members. You know, I asked a lot of people this week, look, uh, critical race theory, school COVID policies, COVID pol- they were all on the ballot in Virginia, and people talked about how they helped uh, Glenn Youngkin win Virginia. They're on the ballot in Mequon Thiesville and didn't work. In fact, I think it was at a minimum 58%, all four got the incumbents yes. in beating back the recall effort. How come? Well, there are a couple of issues that people raised me. One, uh, we don't like recalls in Wisconsin if it's not for something illegal. Uh, we proved that with Scott Walker back in 2012 uh, and Becky Clayfish. Two, a local school board race that got national attention, uh, money from Dick Uline, this mega donor, all this kind of, you know, people from outside you coming in, that maybe not set well with people. Yeah. Uh, you also can't ignore that Becky Clayfish went down there campaigning with the people trying to oust the school board members. She got some dirt in her shoes. Uh, by being down there and being involved in this whole thing. But the thought was that it's not just these issues that drive people like in Virginia. Virginia had Joe Biden on the ballot as well. No, he wasn't on the ballot. ballot he, he was, was there, the right? Ballot, right, theory. You take those things off, there's still some issues there, but there's an energy for conservatives about these issues. Um, also worth noting that the Kenosha school board president, they tried to get seniors to recall, recall her. That didn't happen. There was up in Stevens Point. They followed. They went to try and go after half of the board up there over COVID policies. They didn't get the signatures up there. I just get the impression talking to people, we don't really like recalls in Wisconsin unless it's for something illegal, and they didn't do anything illegal. So just mm-hmm. wait till the next election to go after them. And now the question becomes, okay, what do we see from education here going forward? Because Republicans feel like after watching Virginia, there's an opportunity that parents were um, teachers teachers' aides at the very minimum last year during the pandemic while they were, the kids were learning virtually. They want to have in classroom. They want to be involved. They don't like Terry McAuliffe saying, you don't tell schools what to teach. Really not a good line, Terry, in your debate. Uh, didn't help you a whole lot in that campaign. So the question is, where, go, where does it go from here? And I think those two issues, though, do drive out people to the polls. Mm-hmm. I mean, the early voting broke records, and overall, they were, they were sh- like shattered the records for how many ballots they accepted overall in this race. But as we go back to the point, too, where Republicans are celebrating what happened in Virginia, but they're also looking at this and saying, hmm, why didn't it work? You know, yep. So we'll kind of see what their strategy is and which one they choose and if they continue to keep talking about, I think they're going to keep talking oh, about yeah. the whole education in general, but we'll see how much COVID policies and uh, all those other things they're remain gonna on the They're going to say that the, the party of school choice, of parental involvement, of having a say in what you're, you know, they're going to try and portray Governor Evers, who's the education governor, as the education governor of the establishment. We're the ones who care about parents, so watch that messaging mm-hmm. going forward. If Tony Evers is smart, he will never say in a debate that parents should tell te- schools what teach their kids. <laughs> um, like a call. <laughs> you hope he's being prepped on that for his sake. Uh, yeah. But, yeah, just watch this education, how it evolves this issue of the next 12 months in that governor's race. All right. Well, that will do it for this week. I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Rewind. Your Week in Review is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate.